I mean, I'm just saying that when we're trying to understand ourselves, sometimes understanding painful emotions can have clues. You're describing an emotion that's not painful. Um, It just sounds like you're just noticing a difference, which, of course, all of us have many people who are sort of, you know, in different places and we can learn from them or, you know, uh, uh, or not, you know, try to learn from the mistakes that they've made or the successes that they've done. And that's great. Um, but I'm talking about like when there's things that are unattractive, um, when they're, then when, when we're feeling bad feelings, negative feelings, small feelings, feelings of shame, feelings that we don't want to admit, anger, misplaced anger, resent. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And we're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So check out netsuite.com different. On this episode, um, we have an extraordinary conversation with four-time New York Times best-selling author, podcaster, and speaker, the amazing Gretchen Rubin. The New York Times calls Gretchen, quote, the queen of the self-help memoir. And she's got a brand new book out called Outer Order, Inner Calm. We have a fun, insightful, uh, playful conversation about how to be more happy in life, how to create powerful habits, why we need to be in tune with the negative power of envy, why we need to pay attention to the things we lie about, even if they're just little white lies, how we can be more generous with ourselves, and many more practical insights that you'll be able to put to work in your life right away. Uh, Go to Lockhead.com to check out more on uh, Gretchen, find out how you can pick up her new book, and get the key takeaways from this episode. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how are you, Gretchen? I'm very happy to be talking to you. I'm very happy to be talking to you. I love your work. Oh, well, thank you very much. I think it would be, would it be fair to say you're prolific? I think that would be fair to say. (laughs) Yeah, you seem very busy. You seem like you have a lot to say and write. Yes, I do. I do. I'm a, I'm a really, I'm a writer. I'm writing all the time. A lot of things that nobody ever sees too. (laughs) And so I got to ask you, like, what what drives you to keep writing these incredible books? You know, I think for me, I only know what I think if I'm writing. And so my process is always starts with reading. So I just read all the time. I read a lot of stuff that no one has ever heard of, like kind of weird, odd books. Um, I read for fun. I read for work. And I'm constantly taking notes. And um at a certain point, you know, I'll I'll start to have ideas around a certain subject, and I'll start to pursue it, and then I'll think, well, I, you know, like my book about habit change, you know, I was like, how do people change their habits? And the only way I could answer that question for myself was to write a book about it. So, uh, like, I just wrote this funny little weird book called My Color Pilgrimage because I was just super interested in color, and the only way I could kind of think through my own thoughts about color. Um, turned out to be to write a funny little book about it. So who knows what will happen with that little book, but um, it was fun for me to think through uh, color. That's fun. I'm reminded, I read a quote years ago, um, an interviewer asked P- Peter Drucker towards the end of his life, why he kept writing and speaking and so forth. And he said, it's the only way I can know what I'm thinking. It's really true. It's funny. I didn't know he'd said that, but it's really true. And then also uh, talking about speaking, one of the things that's interesting about speaking or any kind of engagement on social media or, or whatever, or, you know, in, you know, like a speaking engagement is that you, other people deepen your understanding, their questions, their insights, their observations. Um, I've learned so much from having the opportunity to talk about my ideas because then people, chime in. And um, through that, I get a much, much deeper understanding that I could ever get on my own. It's like the world is my research assistant, you know? Um, <laughs> so actually, uh, that's that's absolutely true, too. 
Yeah, and the interesting thing I find about that, I was on Cora this morning, and I hadn't been on for a while, and I answered a couple of questions. And I'm not a natural writer, Gretchen. I'm I'm dyslexic, and so writing, unlike talking, is real work for me. Um, but when you go to answer a question, particularly one that maybe requires a little bit of nuance or or thought, whether a question on Cora or just a thought in general, um, it, it forces me to make sure. I'm sort of explicit about um, those nuances that I don't sort of just speak kind of in absolutes. And I'm somebody who's fairly uh, absolutist, if that's a word. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I like that that writing in particular forces me to be more nuanced. Do, do you have that experience as well? No, absolutely. I mean, when you're writing, you have to choose a verb. So that requires you to decide how strongly you're, you're, you stand behind something or, you know, how much you want to shade it or suggest it. Um, and I really do think that um, writing something down forces your thoughts to be so much more clear. Um, one thing that you notice when people are speaking is they'll, they'll often repeat themselves over and over because they're kind of edging closer to something and they feel like they haven't quite communicated it. So they'll sort of rephrase it and rephrase it. One of the things I love about writing is because you can take your time and get it exactly right. You feel like you sort of crystallized your idea. Um, and that's very satisfying. Um, to, to me, sometimes speaking, I feel like it's hard for me to like really hit the bullseye of what I'm trying to communicate. I sort of need to have a little bit of time to think it through to like wordsmith it to get it exactly right. Yes, I, I understand that, although it doesn't stop me from speaking. <laughs> oh, yeah, me, not, not me either. Like they both have their advantages. Yeah. And uh, this probably happens to you less because my guess is you're a more thoughtful person than I am. But uh, I'll say something and, and then I'll think, oh, shit. That really did not come out the way I hoped it would, or 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 maybe you don't even realize it's gonna you know land horribly until it comes out of your mouth. And you're like, oh god, and now now you got to go clean it up or back it up because yeah. you didn't mean it the way it landed. No, it's happened to all of us, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, when I was 38 years old, I uh, sort of uh, hung up my gloves, so to speak, as a um, as an executive and a and a tech CMO. And I went into, you know, what I think some people would call semi-retirement. I've, I've been schooled that I shouldn't use the R word anymore, so I don't. Um, but when I did that, I sort of said to myself, hey, I want to get a black belt in happiness. And uh, I read your book, Happiness Project, and I read a whole bunch of other things and um, you know, lots of TED Talks and podcasts and, you know, so forth and so on, trying to educate myself not so much on the, you know, what I would call uh, happy horse shit, uh, you know, motivational speaker perspective of happiness, but uh, on a much more thoughtful, well-researched, kind of grounded approach to happiness, which is a big, big part of what, uh, why I love your work so much. And so with all that said, Gretchen, I'm just curious, as somebody who is aspiring to have a black belt in happiness, what are the things that you would uh, coach me towards? Well, I think if you're going to say, like, what's the key to happiness, I think there's two answers to that question, depending on what framework you use to to think about it. So one answer, and ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists would agree, that relationships are a key to happiness, that to be happy, we have to have enduring intimate bonds, we have to feel like we belong, we have to be able to confide a secret. Uh, we need to be able to uh, get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And so anything that broadens or uh, deepens your relationship is something that's going to make you happier. And when we look at people who say that they're happier, they tend to have more relationships. So having relationships is very, very important to happy life. Now, you could also answer that question differently because you could look at it from a very different vantage point and you could say, well, the key to happiness is self-knowledge. Because we can build a happy life only on the foundation of our own nature, our own interests, our own values, our own temperament. And then it's really by knowing ourselves that with this knowledge, we can shape our lives to better reflect what is true for us. Um, I think both of those answers are true. Um, They just are kind of different ways um, to get to the same place. So maybe let's go to self-knowledge for a sec. Uh, I've heard you say and... um... Uh, and write about that 
you know, we live with ourselves. We are in, in ourselves. We walk around with this piece of meat that we identify as ourselves. Uh, um, and so, and no matter what happens, I turn around and there I am, right? Yep. And yet um, you've talked about and written about, it's, it can be very hard to know oneself. Yes. And so maybe help unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, you're exactly right. You think, what could be easier than to know myself? I just hang out with myself all day long. Um, But it's very easy um, not to see ourselves. One, sometimes we wish that we were different from the way that we are, or other people expect us or want us to be different from the way we actually are, or we have a fantasy of who we want to be, which doesn't really match up with who we are. And so one of the things I'm interested in doing is coming up with sort of indirect questions or indirect ways to help us understand ourselves because we can't always look directly in the mirror, but sometimes there are questions that can help us um, notice things about ourselves. So for instance, a question that I love is, whom do you envy? Because envy is a very uncomfortable emotion and people often don't want to admit that they feel envy, but envy is actually really, really helpful because if you envy somebody, they have something that you wish you had. And sometimes we're not willing to admit to ourselves that we want it. So I remember talking to a friend of mine who was really like very bitter about this person in her office who traveled all the time. And she was sort of complaining about someone's always going on these trips and talking about these trips and everything. And I was like, well, you could take a trip. And she realized actually the reason she was sort of angry was she was actually feeling envy. And there was nothing stopping her from planning interesting trips. You know, it's the kind of thing where you, you sort of have to be organized and think about it. And it's easy for the months and the years to pass. And yet she was a person for whom travel was very important. And so this envy was like a big flashing sign to her that she had neglected something that was a very high value, which was planning and taking trips. Um, another question that's really helpful is what do you lie about? Because when we lie, often we are lying because what we do doesn't match up with what our value is. And that's really important information. So if you lie about how much TV you watch every day, or if you tell people that you go to bed at 1030 when actually you go to bed at 130, um, you know, you're a grown up, you can go to bed whenever you want. But the fact that you're not being truthful about it means that somehow you're not comfortable with what your real answer is. And that's a sign, hey, maybe I need to try to get my actions and my values into uh, better harmony. It's funny. I was thinking, okay, so what do I lie about? And what are the things that other people lie about that I catch them in that are surprising? And I'll never forget. It sort of popped into my head the minute you said it. There was a CEO I used to work with. And I am six feet and one half inch. That's how tall I am. No bullshit. Mm -hmm. So I know what six feet is because I'm six feet. Right. And I forget why, but somebody asked him how tall he was. Uh, and this guy was shorter uh, than me by, uh -huh. I'm going to guess, at least two inches. And, you know, there's uh -huh. nothing wrong with being 5'10 or plus or minus. Uh, and I had stood next to this guy before. I knew this guy. We worked on and off. And he looked this person in the eye and he said, six feet. Mm -hmm. And I went, wow, that guy. He just, I almost said his name. I shouldn't, of course. But he, he just fucking lied about his height. Isn't that yeah. like, why would you lie about that? Who cares? You're 5'10". Maybe he's 5'10 and a half. Maybe he was 5'11 and I was wrong. But he definitely wasn't six feet. I'll tell you that. And I found that um, kind of fascinating. So that's a powerful question. Like, I think some of us lie about our, uh, you know, I know that um, I don't like it when I start feeling too um, uh, overweight. You know, mm -hmm. I like to be under 200 pounds. Um, and so... Uh, I don't know that I would lie to somebody if they asked me how much I weighed and I knew I was over 200. I don't know that I would do that, but I definitely will lie to myself and mm -hmm. put on a pair of pants that normally fit well and now are feeling a little snug and I'll make up some bullshit in my head. <laughs> yeah. They must have shrunk with time. Yes. Or, yeah. The heat, they're smaller than they used to be. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I think it's, there's all kinds of ways we deceive others. And of course, self-deception is the most, is the most, we, the person we deceive the most is ourselves. So you're right. It's great to be on the lookout for, um, for when that's true. And I want to circle back to envy. And I know it's a word, you know, we all know. But um, maybe if you could, as, as silly as this might sound, define for me exactly what you mean by envy. 
So that's interesting because the words jealousy and envy are also often used interchangeably. And so, um, you know, and I've I've seen that often. Um, But I think one way to think about it is jealousy is when someone has something. um, uh, Envy is when you want something that someone else has. Um, So envy is like you travel all the time and I envy you because I want to travel all the time. Um, jealousy has more to do with like, I'm jealous of something. I don't want you to have something because I, I want all of this person's attention. So I don't want you, you know, so they are, they're, they're, they're tricky to kind of get, um, exact, uh, fixes on, but yeah, but envy is when you, when somebody has something that you wish you had, I envy you your height. I envy you your musical ability. I envy you the fact that you go home every day at 6 PM, that kind of thing. And is there, this may sound naive, but I'm curious to sort of get into this. Um, is is there such a thing as positive envy? Because I, I try to flip it on its side and say, well, uh, you know, I think about things in my own life, you know, whether it's fitness goals that I have or other various goals that I have, you know, I want to get better as a surfer or so forth and so on. And, and so, you know, I'll take surfing as an example. You know, I have friends who are professional surfers and they're extraordinary. And what they do and what I do should be called different things. (laughs) And I want to improve my surfing. But I don't feel like um, I I feel more inspired by them. It's like, well, wow, you know, if if she can surf that way, you know, maybe I can. And maybe she can give me some pointers. And and so is there a positive envy that's more inspired by as opposed to sort of looking at them going, Oh, that asshole is, you know, better surfer than me. Well, I think that's more admiration. So admiration is a, is a, an emotion that we don't deny, you know, it's like, Oh, I admire these surfers. That's great. Like, Oh, I love their style. I like, I want to study them and learn from them. That's a positive emotion. Envy is something that we often deny ourselves. We don't want to admit that we're envious because it feels ugly and small. Um, and so it's easy to, I think, for most people to identify with admiration, but I think envy has important clues as well. Yeah. And I know for me, when I've tried to dig into this for myself, I like, do I envy this person or, or is it something else? And so, you know, if you think about in, in a business context or, uh, or, or as a writer, you've written more books than I have. I've written two and you've written, how many have you written now, Gretchen, with your new one coming out? Nine, I think. Nine. Okay, so I'm I'm far behind you as a writer, and you're well, mo- you're much more well known than I am as a writer. And so I look at that and I go, well, you know, that's cool. I love what Gretchen's doing. I've you know read some of your stuff, um, and so I'm not sort of I don't look at you and sort of begrudge you your success. I look at it and go, man, she's really great. She's really thoughtful. Uh, you have a great podcast that's hugely popular. And, you know, these are all things that I aspire to and I'm working towards, but I don't feel um, any negativity towards you because you've achieved those things. And yet, um, you know, there's a difference between the number of books you've written and the number of books I've written. And so how do you think about, you know, envy versus whatever it is I'm trying to describe here? I think you're just making a different point. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying that when we're trying to understand ourselves, sometimes understanding painful emotions can have clues. You're saying, describing a, an emotion that's not painful. Um, it just sounds like you're just noticing a difference, which of course all of us have many people who are sort of, you know, in different places and we can learn from them or, you know, uh, uh, or not, you know, try to learn from the mistakes that they've made or the successes that they've done. And that's great. Um, but I'm talking about like when there's things that are unattractive, um, when they're, then when, when we're feeling bad feelings, negative feelings, small feelings, feelings of shame, feelings that we don't want to admit, anger, misplaced anger, resentment. Why is this person so angry at her coworker for going on a trip? What does she possibly care? What does that come up? Why is that any of her business? Well, it's because there's envy there and there's a clue in envy. What you're describing doesn't really sound like a negative emotion. It just sounds like, ah, people are different. I'm doing this. She's doing that. That's kind of cool. I'm doing cool stuff too. You know, like. Yeah. So it's I think when that's it's- good. I mean, that's, there's, there's good to be gained from that. Um, I'm just pointing out sort of like a kind of a, a very like specific subset because these are things that we often don't want to admit. Um, and so we hide them from ourselves back to this idea of like self-deception. We hide them from ourselves or we hide the reasons that we're feeling the way that we're feeling. Um, she's super annoying because all she does is talk about her trips. Is she super annoying? Is that what's going on here? 
or right. something else fueling your emotions. And so it's like, try to like, oh, okay, maybe something else is going on here. It's not what she's doing. It's what I'm thinking, you know. So that's if there's the an ugliness to it or if there's a shamefulness, that is maybe you wouldn't tell someone else or very many people that you think, you know, she's a she's a biatch because she gets to travel all the time. Or maybe you tell everybody that. Maybe you talk about that all the time. I mean, sometimes it's funny where people will react very violently to something that you're like, that doesn't seem like such a big deal to me. And I'm and I'm always like, huh, I think maybe I think maybe this is a reflection on you, not on them, because something is happening to make you emotionally worked up. Because um, a lot of times, you know, our reactions to things aren't really about the things themselves, but our own attitude or our own assumptions or wishes or fears around something else, you know? Um, so it's the, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's the Shakespearean, me thinks thou doth protest too much. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. So we should pay close attention to those things that we're protesting and maybe those things that are a little bit ugly in ourselves and, and ask ourselves, what, why is that? Well, I think that there's a, I mean, if I remember correctly, a therapist one t- once told me that they they say, follow the affect, meaning don't listen to what people say, but pay attention to when they get really charged up. And it's interesting because I have this new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, which is all about why for most people, Outer Order contributes to Inner Calm. And the reason that I got interested in the subject was I noticed that I would talk to people about happiness and good habits and eating right and getting more sleep and connecting with their friends and self-knowledge. And people were really interested and engaged. Sometimes when I talked about things related to clutter, like making your bed or cleaning out your coat closet, people got supercharged up. Like they would laugh and they would get, there was just like a buzz to it. And I'm like, that's interesting. Like why, why is there this extra energy, this extra kind of engagement around something that in the context of a happy life actually seems kind of trivial, like cleaning out your coat closet is not that big a deal. And yet people would see, they'd be like, oh, I feel amazing. This is great. I feel like I have so much focus. Somebody literally told me I cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I was like, <laughs> I know exactly how that feels, but that's kind of weird. That's disproportionate. Like what's going on? So again, it's like, don't look at the thing itself. Look at everything that's around it. Cause somehow there's more to it than meets the eye. Um, and that's always instructive to try to understand what's going on um, that's giving these things kind of that supercharge. Interesting. I, I haven't read his book, but I, you know, I've heard some of his lectures and so forth, um, Jordan Peterson. And one of the things I've heard him say is um, something to the effect of, you know, make your bed, right? Like if, if you can't just make your bed, then how are you going to deal with your life or you know, making a, a career or making a difference in the world or whatever it is you want. If you can't sort of make your bed and brush your teeth and sort of handle the basics, then how are you going to do anything else? Is it a little bit like that? Well, it's interesting, like just to take the make your bed, like a lot of people say make your bed. Uh, there's a book by a Navy, like head of the Navy SEAL saying make your bed. In my own view, there's no one right way. I know people are like, I make my bed. It makes me feel amazing. I myself make my bed in a hotel room on the morning I check out. So I'm a real bed maker. But I know people who are like, I don't make my bed. And that is fantastic. I'm free. I'm an adult. I do whatever I want. I don't want to make my bed. And I'm like, excellent. You don't need to make your bed. There's no reason to make your bed unless it makes you happier or healthier or more creative or more productive or get you the life you want. There's no magic to making your bed. There's no one size fits all solution for everyone. So if you don't want to make your bed and that's what, and that's what works for you and you're excited about that, or like you feel like that's how you assert your freedom in the world. Excellent. I don't think that there's any, I wouldn't say like everybody needs to do anything because each person's different. And I think that um, the idea that because it works for me means that it works for you. In my observations, that's just not so true. I've seen, there's many, many ways to achieve aims and um, some people do it one way and some people do it another. And I think for each of us, it's more about, well, what's true for me? What works for me? Not like, how do I live a life that's more like someone who's a Navy SEAL? It's like, maybe that'll work for you. Maybe it won't. It's interesting yeah. to think about. You might want to experiment and try it and see how it goes. But there's nothing wrong with you if you're like, eh, I don't see why I would make my bed. I just unmake it the night the, the, that night. Like, why would I just like arbitrarily do this thing over and over again? I'm like, I get it. That's kind so of how I it. feel. I don't know why yeah. we have to have all those pillows put back. But <laughs> I mean, there's there's no reason unless you, that's what you like. I like it. So I do it. But there's no magic to it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. 
The other one I look at in this regard is, are there things along those lines that are lingering or that are ongoing, right? So, um, uh, you know, for example, um, for the last several weeks, I haven't uh, trained. I haven't worked out very much because I hurt my knee. And it's now starting to drive me nuts that, um, A, I should have been thinking about things I could do that wouldn't involve my knee that would have allowed me to train more than I have. Mm -hmm. And B, you know, maybe I should have been icing my knee a little bit more. And, you know, maybe I should have looked harder for different, you know, Ben Gay like creams or things or like, you know, maybe I haven't done enough to rehab my knee. And so I'm mad at myself because I'm not working out and training as much as I normally would like to. And I'm, I feel like I've, um, I've sort of screwed up on rehabbing what feels like a minor injury, but it's actually stopping me from doing a lot of things. And so now I'm pissed off at myself for not uh, uh, you know, properly dealing with um, multiple elements regarding my knee. And I've finally said, listen, this is stupid being mad about this. Like you just, you know what there is to do. Get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think sometimes people in your situation are like in an analogous situation. They feel like if they really beat up on themselves, that some, that's some, somehow going to inspire them to do better. Like if I really beat up on myself for not having used this time to train my upper body, like somehow that's going to like energize me. But actually what research shows is that people who are more generous to themselves um, are actually better at getting back in the saddle or like, you know, as you say, kind of saying, okay, well, I didn't handle that as, as best I could. I sort of learned that lesson. Uh, seems like a small thing, but I think I really do need to deal with this. What can I do now? They, people who are sort of show more compassion to themselves actually do a better job of then re-engaging. So if you feel like, oh gosh, you know, I was so good about eating this really healthy way, but my birthday came and I just blew it. It's like, okay, it wasn't your best effort. What did you learn from it? So it sounds like you learned some things from this experience. Like I kind of didn't take it seriously enough. I didn't come up with a plan. I should have thought about rehab. I should have thought about, you know, alternative training methods. Okay, now you know, and then life is long. You will certainly, ha- you'll injure your shoulder or, you know, or your ankle will go. Yes, I will. Like, <laughs> ah, you know, what do I need to do now? So you've learned um, there's a, an English proverb that I love because I think it's very, it's, it's a great way to frame this kind of thing. And it's a stumble may prevent a fall. And so it's like, this was a stumble and you've learned a lot, but maybe in having this kind of unfortunate experience when you're like, gosh, I kind of blew it for myself, but now I've learned this lesson. Maybe next time you're really going to save yourself from overtraining or, you know, or going back too early and then re-injuring yourself worse, which is certainly something that all of us who know athletes they bitterly regret it. You know, they yeah. push themselves, they get back in too early and then they put themselves so far, so far back. And, ah, that is the worst feeling. And so maybe you've saved yourself from that. A stumble may prevent a fall. Um, this is, I talk a lot about this in Better Than Before, my book about habit change, because obviously if you're trying to change a habit, one of the things that happens is what happens when you don't keep that habit. Right. You How are going to fail, right? Yeah. You know, so you have to plan for failure. You have to think about safeguards um, and you have to have a way of understanding them. And so, um, so absolutely the way you think about sort of your experience so far can really set you up in the future um, to do much better about achieving your aim, which is like general, you know, healthy body, energetic body, pain-free body and performance. The other one I'm trying to get better at is sort of cutting myself a little slack, you know? So for example, uh, um, my wife's Italian. She's an extraordinary cook. Her entire family cooks. They make their own pasta. We have a nephew who's, you know, Michelin trained chef. I mean, we, I just live in a food paradise. So heading into the holidays, I just know, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to gain five pounds. I just am. Like I could tell myself I'm not, but I want to enjoy this food. I, I, I'm incredibly lucky to live in this environment. And I'm probably not going to work out as much because it's the holidays and I'm probably going to eat too much. And so I'm going to allow myself to gain that five pounds. And I make a deal with myself that says, and you're going to get on it and you're going to lose that five pounds pretty quickly because, you know, I can drop five pounds in, in two weeks or less if I get focused on it. Right. And so I'm not very good at that yet, but I'm trying to be a little bit more proactive in my thinking and allow myself some slack and also say, and we'll reapply the discipline after this time period. 
Well, that works really well if you actually follow through with it. I mean, it sounds like you've got like a very good control and you're able to lose weight when you want to. Unfortunately, that's very difficult for a lot of people. And in fact, research shows that over the holidays, most people put on a few pounds and it doesn't seem like a big deal, but then they never lose them. And so if you gain a couple pounds, you know, three pounds over 10 years, which as an adult, 10 years goes by in a flash, that's 30 pounds. Um, and then that's quite significant if you want to lose 30 pounds. And so it sounds like for you, losing weight is not that difficult. Um, I envy you that. That is not my experience. Um, and uh, but so again, I think that this goes back to this idea of like knowing what works for you. This works for you. Um, you can make up your mind and kind of enjoy it and then and then like do the discipline. I think for other people that might not be realistic because they couldn't they wouldn't they might say to themselves, um, well, I'll definitely lose it in the new year. But unless you've done that before, and I would say whether unless you've done that consistently before, don't assume that it will be easy. That's the tomorrow loophole, um, which is it's going to be so easy tomorrow. Tomorrow, it's going to be so easy to stick to a budget. Tomorrow, gosh, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm going to eat so healthfully starting tomorrow. It's like... Yeah, but it's always, you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. Today's always the day that you have to stick to the budget or stick <laughs> to the, you know, healthy eating habits. So it works for you, but I think you're a lucky guy. I'm not sure. Well, that and that it doesn't approach. always work for me and I'm not perfect. And I have blown this agreement with myself in the past. So I don't want to sound like I've got like this all figured out, but I, I, if I, if I think through things like that proactively, generally I can have the discipline on the back end. The funny thing, I was laughing to myself as you were talking because I was reminded, remember the movie Airplane? Yes. Oh, remember? yes. No, I know exactly the scene that you're going to say. Describe it. I know exactly what you're going to say. I picked the wrong day, right? Right. It's a bad week to stop sniffing glue, right? <laughs> I picked the Yeah. First, he's like, I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. I quit the wrong week. To, yes, exactly. Hilarious. Yes. I think that's actually in Better Than Before in the book, or at least I wrote a blog post about it because I know exactly. It's never, you know, you're always like, oh, man, now is now the time I'm supposed to do that? Dang it. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I would say about holidays, just as because we're sort of on holiday. One of the things about a holiday for a lot of people, maybe not for you, but it's a holiday. You know, it's it's Christmas Day. It is not the holiday season, which stretches from the week before Thanksgiving until the day after January 1st. That's a long time to let yourself off the hook. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to have whatever I want for Christmas dinner or like I'm going to have so much fun on New Year's Eve. It's another thing to say like, hey, who could ask me to eat healthfully during the holiday season when there's all these like treats and wonderful things and festivity and parties around? I should be able to have everything I want. It's just a very different thing. So anyway, I get it way into yeah. this um, and better than before because it is it's something that many people uh, spend a lot of time thinking about, which is um, how to have the healthy habits that they want over the long term. The other one, and this is a little bit of a side note, but and and you know maybe it's because I. Uh, grew up uh, in what you might call a modest environment. But when shit's free, it's really yeah. hard to have discipline, right? So like yeah. an open bar, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, the the booze is free. They'll give me as much scotch as I want. You know, maybe you're at a wedding or whatever it is, or, you know, or a buffet. Like a, I can be terrible at a buffet because it's like, well, you know, you got to get the most out of this buffet and you paid for it. And so- you know, the second plate or the third plate is free, right? And so, yeah. or or on an airplane, or you know, those. Uh, so I don't know. There's a funny thing when it's like, it's free. You can have as much of this as you want. And then, I, for some reason, that's connected to a Jerry Seinfeld uh, routine in my head. Do you remember him talking about um, when you're a kid, your 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 parents tell you you can't ruin your appetite. Mm. And then right. when you're an adult, you realize you can ruin your appetite anytime you want. And there's another appetite coming next yes. to it. And so there is this element of, of, you know, today they call it adulting, right? It's like, well, uh, I'm a grown man. I can afford as much scotch as I want. I could drink a bottle of scotch a night if I wanted to. But yeah. it turns out that's a really bad idea. <laughs> Yeah. No. And you're exactly right. Having things be free really messes with our heads. Um, and if it's all you can, if it's everything you can have, like people have this need to kind of take advantage of it. So for instance, like if I'm in a hotel um, often, cause I travel all the time, often it's like you can have the buffet or you can order from the menu. I never order. I never get a buffet option because it's like, if you get scrambled eggs and bacon, you get scrambled eggs and bacon. 
the buffet, it's like endless. And, and, and we also eat more when there are more choices. That's research shows. And so seeing a lot of choices is going to make you put more things on your plate. Um, again, about habits, it's like have the habit of not taking the, like, the little snack that they hand you in the airplane. Like Just say to yourself, you know what? I don't need those shortbread cookies or I don't need that pack of pretzels. I'm just going to always say no. One of the problems with habits is decision fatigue. Um, making a decision using our willpower is difficult, and that's why habits can help. So having the habit of like, I always say no on an airplane, or I bring my own food onto an airplane, well, then that kind of relieves you from having to make a decision because you're like, oh, I never, I never get the free food on an airplane. Now, I'm a person who eats very, very low carb. I really am one of those crazy low carb people that you read about. And one of the reasons I love eating low carb is that it removes so many decisions from me. Oh, there's free candy in this store. Do I eat it? No, because I don't eat carbs. Oh, there's free pretzels. Can I eat those? No, I don't eat carbs. Oh, it's my birthday. Do you want a piece of birthday cake? No, I don't because I don't eat carbs. It just It's like a whole bunch of noise in my head just goes away. Because uh, I don't eat, I don't eat sugar, I don't eat flour, I don't eat rice, I don't eat pasta. I'm with your wife in a food paradise, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't eat pasta. You know. Yeah. So for me, that's easy. That would not work for many people. I 100% understand that that is not how many people would want to go about their day. But for me, it's so freeing because I don't have to make all those decisions or yeah, think and, about them. And yet, it can be tough. Like even on a plane, you know, the flight attendant will come around with the freshly baked cookies. And I, I never eat that stuff because I know that if I let myself do that stuff, I'm going to be five million pounds really quickly. And so, so I say no, and they say, "Oh, you sure?" And it smells so good. And, you know, there's this other thing about food that's interesting, which is, um, in in a lot of ways, that food is a uh, an expression of love, an expression of of contribution, uh, uh, and so forth. It can be very hard to say to somebody who's well-meaning, who's trying to do something nice for you, uh, no, I don't want to eat that cookie. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin that I do with my sister, um, who's Which my is co-host. awesome, Gretchen. Oh. It's so much fun. I love oh. the the banter you guys have. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's really uh. great. You've done such an awesome job with your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Well, one of the things, um, so my sister is like a big TV writer and producer and showrunner in Hollywood. And, you know, there's so much food in Hollywood and like, it's just like, it's written into their contracts. Um, And she's also a type one diabetic. And so for her, it's really important to eat healthfully. And one of the things we talked about way back when we were starting our podcast, but that people still are responding to is the idea of the evil donut bringer. And the evil donut bringer is the person who's like, I'm going to bring in free donuts to everybody from work. And like now the whole day, it was just like my whole day is like, do I have a donut? Do I have half a donut? I can smell the donuts. I can see the donuts when I go get a cup of coffee. Oh, the donuts, the donuts, the donuts. But a lot of people are like, but this is how I show my affection for the office. Like I want to contribute to it. Um, I'm not evil. Like how can you say that's bad? And so it's really this ongoing discussion that we've had about, how do you support someone or show, how do you show festivity? How do you show a celebration? Um, how do you make a gesture? Um, or how do you maintain your healthy habits, even in the face of people saying, oh, I made it myself. You have to try it. Just one won't kill you. All this kind of thing. Like, how do you respond it's to that? It's my grandmother's recipe. <laughs> it's my grandmother's recipe. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's imp- it, these things are important to think about. Um, now, there's something in habits called if-then planning, which is you think, you think in advance when you're in kind of a cold state. If someone, if I go to my friend's house and I know that she always urges me to drink, many, many she's always filling up my wine glass. Then I will say to her, "What? If this happens, then what? If I go to this party, then I will not stand next to the dessert table." Um, if I, you know, if it's New Year's Eve, then I will have one glass of champagne or whatever. It's much easier to execute once we've decided what to do in advance. And so that's the strategy of safeguards, thinking about, well, what are the potential uh, challenges that I could face and how do I think about it in advance so I can come up with a game plan before I'm actually faced with the temptation? Because that's the hardest time to decide. Yeah. One of the ones for me, if I want to curb drinking, because man, I love drinking, is to make a decision ahead of time for going somewhere yeah. that I'm going to drive back. Ah, Because yeah. I, I, I can't drink and drive. It's not, I just can't do it. It's not who I am. Right. And so, look, and I'm a big guy. You know, I can have a couple beers uh, over the course of two or three hours and drive totally sober. And, and so I'm yeah. not worried about that. But I can't have four 
or I can't have two beers and a glass right. of wine and a, or sure. whatever it is, right? I can have right. some, yeah. and I'm somebody who can have a beer, a glass of wine and be done, or two and be done. Yeah. But if we're going somewhere and I feel like, you know, I, I want to kind of manage myself appropriately, my wife doesn't drink that much. So I always have this out called Carrie can drive if I decide to have four beers. But yeah. I say to myself, nope, Christopher, tonight you're driving both ways. Uh, you can have one or two if you want. But mm -hmm. that's it. You got to be a good boy. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that sounds like a great that's a great solution because it sounds like your value is really not driving, not driving when you've been drinking. And so that value is going to trump everything. You're yeah, not there, do I just can't that's do it. inconsistent with your value, which is to be the safe and responsible um, person on the road. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever really, truly driven drunk. I have driven at times where I thought afterwards mm, that last one was probably a dumb idea. Um, but I've never driven hammered or anything like that, but I just, it's just not in me, uh, dr driving stoned, any of that stuff. All that seems like a very bad idea to me. <laughs> well, I live in New York city, so that's not like, that doesn't work for people here because like we can always take, take, there's always all these alternatives for it. Yes, yes. Um, but for people who are driving, that's like a great, 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 um, way to think about it. So I like this idea you have, you call this if then planning. Mm-hmm. So if they come with the cookies, what am I going to do? <laughs> right. Yeah. If they offer me food on the free food on the airplane, I will I will say I will decline. I only eat food that I've brought onto the airplane. So I have my I have my little bag of nuts, I have my sandwich, I have whatever you know, my my cheese stick. Um maybe I'm going to go a whole 2 hours without eating, which right. is possible. Right. Um, you know, uh, but I think uh, then it just it's easier because it's like they're coming around and you're like, now yeah, I'm not even going to like, I, you know, I'm dozing. I'm not even going to try to open my eyes. I'm just like, no, I don't want it. You know, the other thing, just circling back to the envy versus kind of inspired sort of discussion. We had um, uh, Golden State Warriors uh, finals MVP um, Andre Iguodala on the podcast. And he was absolutely wonderful. And we talked a little bit about his diet. And he's mostly a vegetarian, although he said Chick-fil-A's really got him. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. um, but you know, when you talk to an, uh, an elite athlete like that, particularly someone like him who's pretty much in the prime of his career, um, you really get a sense for, wow, you know, this guy's body means everything to him because it's his instrument, right? And so uh, it's an inspiring level of discipline. And you think, well, geez, if I could have, you know, if he could do that, you know, maybe I could have 25% of the discipline around my diet that Andre has in his. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, we can often look at the example of other people and, uh, and learn from like what their habits are. Absolutely. So I also, with your new book coming out, of course, I, I'm very curious because I am someone who is, uh, uh, could be easily described as naturally messy. Mm -hmm. I don't like a lot of mess, but I'm far from sort of naturally uh, what my grandmother would have called tidy. I am not organized at all. I have, you know, dyslexia and dyscalculia, and I learned this thing recently called executive function disorder. And so, you know, it could take me 15 minutes to find the keys to get out of the house. And I've tried to train myself to put them in exactly the same spot all the time. And yet somehow they still wander off. And so uh, with all that said, tell me about this connection between uh, what you see as kind of a orderliness, uh, uh, keeping things uh, organized um, and, and, and inner happiness. You know, this, this outer order, inner, uh, do you call it inner calm? Mm-hmm. Um, well, some people, it sounds like you actually feel more inner calm when you have outer order, even though it's, uh, it's uh, challenging for you to maintain it. There are some people who I would say are clutter blind. Like my sister is like this. She's very messy, but she doesn't care. Like if she lived by herself, she would just live in a mess because she really doesn't see it. It doesn't bother her. It's like the cabinets are open. The mail is heaped on the counter. She just doesn't care. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe you have to manage it if you live or work with other people. But if, but if not, like, that's fine because you don't care. It sounds like you do care. Um, and that's where people who would like to have um, outer order find it challenging to maintain. Um, and so sometimes you can find funny solutions to your problems 
Um, for instance, for the thing about the keys, one thing you can think about is the tile app. And this is something where you put it on your keys or your phone or whatever. I mean, your keys. And then from your phone, it will ring. And so you can just find yes. your keys. And so maybe it's like, if you can't, my, what I think is helpful is like, whenever possible, don't try to change yourself, change your environment. Because it's a lot easier to change your environment than it is to change your inner nature. So if you're like, I can never put the keys in the same place, don't keep beating yourself up being like, why can't I do that? Just say like, oh, there's this cool thing I can get. And for like not very much money, I can just slap this on everything in my house. And I'll just like, it'll just ping and I'll find the keys in the refrigerator or wherever they are, wherever I happen to put them. And so the problem solved. I don't have to change. I've changed my environment. One thing about people Can I tell you something about that? Yeah. So my wife, Carrie, got me these things. Oh, good. Okay. And how did it work? I lost them. You lost your keys. No, I lost the fucking tile app. All the little tiles. I don't know where they are. She was going to help me set it up because I'm, you know, not an organized person. Oh, and so you lost them before you even put them on your keys. Yes. And I almost wondered, uh, was this some weird, deep-seated Freudian ooh, thing yes. or something? <laughs> Do I need some deep kind of therapy because I yeah. lost the app that was going to solve the problem for me? Uh, and I, I love how you said it. Don't change yourself. Change the environment. Yeah. She was trying to help me do that. And then I yeah. subconsciously sabotaged it like an evil person. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, you could just buy them again. You know, yeah, they're maybe not that's that what I should do. Yeah. Try again. Um, and put it on immediately, like in the store, maybe. Um, don't give yourself that opportunity. Um, one thing about people who are very, very disorganized, um, or, or is I think try to take it like maybe work with somebody. It's often easier when there's somebody with you to kind of help keep you on track. Get rid of as much, as much, as much as you can. And this is true for everyone. Don't get organized. Don't try to put things away. Get rid of as much as you can. If you don't use it, need it, or love it actively, toss it, recycle it, give it away. And I think hold a on, lot hold of on. Can I slow people, you down there, Gretchen? Oh, yeah. If you don't need it, love it, what did you say? Or use it. Need you it? Don't need it, use it, or love it. Why do you have it? Sometimes that. we do love something that we don't need or use. And I think there's room in our homes and our hearts for that. You know, like but that 1980s Van Halen t-shirt that looks disgusting, but for some reason yeah, makes you I happy think, that it's in the bottom of the drawer, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or like I have these vintage kind of New Year's Eve hats that my mother found at a garage sale and they're just beautiful. And I like them too much to like actually use them. And I, and, and maybe I should frame them or do something with them. But like now I just, I just love them and they're in a shelf and I look at them and I love them and I'm like, I have room for this. Um, but there are other things where I'm like, I don't even know what this thing is. Like, this is a cord to nothing. It's covered in dust. No one's used it in three years. Like, I don't know. I just, the uh, the other day, I discovered we have two garlic presses. We never even used one garlic press. Like, <laughs> how did that happen? You know, there's all this stuff that just accumulates. And I think, especially for people who easily get overwhelmed, this just gets in their way. And the more that you can just take it down to what's really useful and active and beloved it just opens up. Yes. Uh, it just makes it easier because you're not fighting with so much stuff. For many people, this is hard. It's hard to kind of make those decisions and go through it. And so, and this is why in the book, I have like tons and tons of ideas, like try this, try this, try this, try this, because some things work well for some people and not for others. But I think for just about everyone, when the things that are kind of clogging up the space and clogging up your vision, um, it makes it harder to find things. It makes it harder to clean. It makes it harder to put things away. It's harder to spot things. Yeah. Um, Did you ever see so any much. of those episodes? I don't know if they're still on TV, but there was a couple TV shows on for a little while. One of them was called Hoarders. I don't know what the other yeah. one was called, but these... And I didn't know these people really existed. Have you, did you see any of this stuff where they have crap piled up to the yeah. ceiling everywhere so, in the house? So hoarding is really a mental illness. It's not really on the continuum of like a a person who's a clutter or what we would call a pack rat. I mean, okay, so that's hoarding a whole is really thing. a different thing. So it's not like because when I watch those shows and I would yeah, see that you know the the expert or whoever the yeah. doctor talking to this person and they'd have to your point they'd have fifteen garlic presses or whatever it was and they would say okay Jimmy we're gonna get rid of these five garlic presses and the person would have like a physical m breakdown. Yeah as a result of it. Th that's way on the extreme, yes? It's a different thing. So yeah, when I'm talking about outer order and inner calm and clearing clutter and getting organized, I'm not talking about that. That is really a separate thing. And there's a, there's a lot uh, that that's not what the ordinary person experiences. So a person who's just messy, you know, like my sister, 
there are things that will work for them. They're probably not going to work for somebody who's experiencing true hoarding. Um, the thing that I've done to do with rare. my messiness is I married an organized person. Mm hmm. <laughs> so does she organize you? How like how does that come up? Is that a conflict? no? She does. She organizes me. Uh huh. Yeah. And does she do that? Un like, does she complain about that? Is she happy to do it about it? Does she just accept that that's the guy she married? Like, yes. what's yeah. yeah? We made a decision. We we designed our relationship, and as part of designing the relationship to your to the earlier discussion we had, Gretchen, you sort of have to know yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And there are things I can do on the margin to be better. Um, and, and you know, I, I do. And there's just some things that are going to be a reality for me, right? And, and I, I think that's yeah. true probably for most of us. And so she's just decided that she's not going to bitch and moan at me. She's not going to do any of that. She, from time to time, will ask me to change my behavior on certain things, and then I do my best to do that, and sometimes I'm better than others, but I'll, I make a good faith effort. But in general, she knows that any kind of thing that's related to organization, I'm going to need help with. And, you know, on the flip side, she has many things like that as well. For some reason, as organized as she is, she is unable to turn off a light. I don't know why. She leaves the lights on. And so I spend all day turning the lights off in the bedroom and turning the lights off in the living room. And, and I, I don't say a word to her. We've been together for over a decade and that beautiful little woman yeah. turns the fucking lights on and leaves yeah. them on. And yeah. I just turn them off. The other thing, she's an incredible cook. She can, she can cook for 25 people and wash the dishes and have the kitchen looking spotless. But the one thing she won't do, she won't put the food away. She, there's mm. something about like, the Tupperware, I don't know what it is, but like getting the leftovers organized and back in the fridge, she's chemically allergic to somehow. I know that about her. So you know what? Great. She made this incredible meal. I'm going to put the food away because otherwise she's going to leave the leftovers take out and it's going to rot. Yeah. And I don't say a word to her about it. I know. And I just do my part. She So... So I think there's also some real comfort in a relationship where you get grounded in who each other is or are, and then you support each other and maybe coach each other on the margin to get better here and there, but also understand, hey, this is who I'm married to. Yes. I think you're exactly right. And it sounds like you and your wife have, have ha hit like a really wonderful balance where there's just an acknowledgement of like, I can do this, you can do that. And if we just sort of divide things up like that, we'll just be happier and not be complete, constantly co complaining to each other. We just sort of overdo our thing. I think that's great. Um, one of the things I often do is I think I'll do it for myself. I used to think like, oh, I'm going to do this because my husband will appreciate it. And then if he didn't notice it or say something, I felt very resentful. And then I'm like, it doesn't even really matter to me. I'm not really doing it for him. I'm doing it because I like it. I like to have the cabinet nicely organized. I like to spend 10 minutes every morning kind of picking everything up so that it looks good for the day. He benefits from it. My family benefits from it. But I really do it because that's the way I like it. And that sounds more selfish. But in a way, it freed me from all kinds of resentment because it's like, I don't have to do it for somebody else. I can do it because that's what I want. And I think yeah. it's great the way you and your wife, it's like, for some reason, like you could complain to her over and over, like, why can't you do this? It's irrational, blah, blah, blah. There's a million reasons. It's like, or I could just turn the light off and just accept like she does a lot for me. I'm going to do this for her. Like in the end, we're a happy couple. And that's more important than like everybody being like optimally acting at all times because we all have these like weird, quirky little things. We all do. Um, and, and who cares? And to your point, I, I look that, at it. Yes. I look at it and yes. go, exactly what you yes. said. This person is the person in the world I respect and admire the most, truly. I love the shit out of her. And she does a ton for us and for our family and all that. And so all those little quirky things, I'll give you another one. Uh, I, I make her tea every morning. And she probably has, I don't know, three to five sips. Like at least two thirds of the tea is not drunk every morning. And she has a tea at night as well. Same thing. She has two or three or five sips. I don't know, whatever it is. But most of that teacup is full. And uh, an earlier version of myself might have gone, hey, I, I made you this fucking tea. You said you wanted it. This is the tea that you like. And you don't drink it. Like, why am I doing this? Well, I don't even have those thoughts anymore. I could give a shit. She likes to have two sips of tea and be done. Okay, so what? 
But it's funny well, how those little things we can get wrapped around the axle about. Yes, we absolutely can. Well, it's interesting, too, to your point that in a couple, what really matters is that people feel like basically both people are pulling their weight or doing their fair share. And it doesn't mean that both people are doing 50-50. And it doesn't mean that like there's an, there's like that what you're doing is as onerous as what I'm doing. And there's all different ways that couples divide up the work. But what's important for a relationship is that both people feel like they're contributing fairly. And so it could be that the cup of tea in the morning is a very important gesture of I'm paying attention to you and I'm trying to meet your needs. And that matters a lot to a person that somebody is trying to like, I'm, I am making the effort. That's more important probably than the tea itself. And so you're like buying yourself a lot of goodwill. Um, and then also, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I do something where like in my, in my marriage, I do a lot of things that have to be done very consistently, like low level things that have to be done consistently. And my husband does a lot of things that kind of come up sporadically and have to be dealt with. This works great for me because the things that happen all the time, I like, I have a whole habit, I have a whole system, I just do it. I don't want to deal with the things that come up all the, like every once in a while, like kind of the one-off things. My husband, he is not good with like, oh, like let's pay the bills on time, like week after week after week. But like something comes up, he'll manage it. And so it works very well for us and kind of our temperaments and like the kind of things that we like to do. And so it works really well because I don't like to do the kind of things that he does and he doesn't like to do the kind of things I do. Um, and instead of like trying to make it like 50-50, we just say, I'll do this kind of thing, you do that kind of thing. And like who spends more time over the course of a year doesn't really matter to us because we're each doing the kind of thing that we would rather do. And so the interesting thing about this for me is, um, for the most part with people I love in my life, I'm not keeping some kind of a scorecard in my oh, head. Oh, that's yes, right? yes, yes. That's so important. I, I am a scorekeeper. I have to fight that impulse all the time. Well, yes, and sometimes right. I do too, you particularly if you it. feel yes. like you're doing more over some period of time than the other. Yep. So, so how do you grapple with the scorecard in your head, particularly mm. with you know, work mm. colleagues that you admire and respect and are close to, or your husband or your, your sister or other people that right. you love where, where that natural tendency over time, you're like, well, you know, shit, I've done these, all these things for you for the last yeah. few months. And where have you been? Well, there's two things about that. One is, um, this is a thing, this is a real fault of mine. Um, I have 12 personal commandments and one of mine is no calculation. And this is inspired by my spiritual master, St. Therese of Lisieux, which I'm not even Catholic, but nevertheless, St. Therese is my spiritual master. And St. Therese wrote, when one loves, one does not calculate. And so I constantly remind myself, no calculation. I don't want to say, well, you took a nap, so I get to do this, or it, I did this, so you do that. Try to get out of that calculation because it really is kind of like an affection killer. And it can, and I, but I am a bean counter, so I have to think about that all the time. Here's another thing to think about. So there's no calculation, but then there's also unconscious overclaiming. This is a phrase I love. So unconscious overclaiming is the psychological phenomenon that if people are working together, either in a relationship or like, as you say, in a work team, people overestimate their contribution relative to other people. So if you say to a couple, how much work do you do as a couple? It will add up to like 134%. Because both people overestimate how much they're contributing. And in a work group, it will end up more than 100%. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is we're more aware of what we do than what other people do. Because we just know what we did. We don't. We forget like, oh yeah, I forgot how you take out the trash every night or whatever. Um, and also we tend to do the things we think are more important. So it's like, well, I think... Like my husband's really, really interested in air conditioning. Like this is a guy who's like, this is like his most important thing during the summer is like, well, what is the state of the air conditioning? The air conditioning. Air conditioning. He's I all about the I'm air conditioner. People, I'm one of these people who's always cold. So like if the air conditioning went out, like I wouldn't care. And so the fact that he's like getting the air conditioning things filtered and getting the guy to come right away and all this, I'm like, okay, I don't really care. To him, it's really important. To me, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rate that as high. I do holiday cards. I think holiday cards are really important. My husband's like, oh, it's nice that you do holiday cards, but he doesn't really want to, you know, he doesn't really care. So it's again, like you think you're doing more than you're doing and you think what you're doing is more important because you do the things that you think are more important. So it's easy to see how in like when there's shared work, it does become complicated yeah. because, and then also there are people who do things and you're like, well, if you make coffee every morning, I assume you just want to make the coffee. 
And it's like, oh, no, I feel like this is my contribution to the work group is that I'm the one who comes in and make coffee. I don't understand where I've been making coffee for a month and no one else has taken the time to make coffee. Why is this on me? And everybody's like, who, we didn't even know, like, we didn't know we were supposed to take a turn. We thought you were making coffee because you wanted to make coffee. Right. Like, no one told you that you had to make coffee. Like, we're, like I, they had no idea that you were feeling resentful. So it can get very complicated when they're shared work. Uh, you know, I remember years ago, um, uh, I was seeing a therapist for a while. And one of the things that he said to me was, uh, do things for you. Yes. You know, yes. So I'll, I'll give you a simple example. Um, uh, we live next door to a, a spectacular couple who have become uh, really adopted family to us. And they have two homes, one here in Santa Cruz and, and one uh, a few hours away. And they split their time roughly 50-50. Anyway, what that ends up meaning is uh, probably, you know, we have a garbage pickup once a week, like I think most people. And at least one week out of the month, sometimes two, um, I have to put out and put back their garbage because they're at their other home. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the beginning, I think they probably thanked me, but they haven't thanked me for, uh, fuck, I don't know, maybe a year. Right. And uh, I noticed myself at one point sort of getting a little grumpy about that. And then I thought, no, no, no. What an idiot. They're wonderful people. You love them. Who cares? It takes five seconds. Um, and you know what? I want to do this for them. And we happen to know uh, the vast majority of our neighbors. And so what's happened for me in this regard, Gretchen, is I've, I've done a 180. Not only do I put out and put back their garbage uh, bins, but when the neighbors across the street who live here full time and they're a wonderful couple, if I notice that their bins are still out and I'm going to put our bins in, I put their bins in. I don't even know if they know I do it. I've never talked to them about it. I've been doing it for a year. I feel like a good person when I put Heather and Jeff's bins away. And 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 so I, 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 this idea of um, I want to do things, whether they're for other people or not. Like I, I pick up I pick up cigarette butts because when cigarette butts on the street make me insane. I don't get a prize for that. The Nobel folks aren't calling, or you know, it just. I don't like that garbage on the street and I pick it up and throw it out, right? And, and so I guess my point is, it's an interesting thing when we sort of free ourselves up from this scorekeeping and we say, you know, I love I love where we live. I love the environment. I love our neighbors. And I just, I want to do some nice things from time to time and I'm just going to fucking do them and I don't care who notices. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree. And I'm afraid I need to go. Yes. Well, I, clearly yeah. I could talk to you forever. You're awesome. Uh, yeah. Anything else before we wrap, Gretchen? No, I'm so happy to have had the chance. I know. I feel like we could talk all day. It's so fun to talk to you. Well, I, I think you're fantastic. I'm stoked about your new book. Uh, I'd love to have you back at some point in the future when you think it's a, a good time for you. And uh, please keep writing and podcasting and doing all the awesome things that you do. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Yeah, Gretchen Rubin on the podcast. <laughs> Man, I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky to have these conversations. Uh, I mean, you know, listen, the term thought leader gets thrown around a lot today. And in the self-help world, as you know, there's a lot of BS and there's a lot of wannabe Gretchen Rubins, but there's only one Gretchen Rubin. And I'm so glad um, I had the opportunity to have that conversation and share it with you. All right. Now, it must be grow time in your business. It's got to be. It's always the time for growth. And NetSuite wants to help you master that growth. Thousands of super high growth entrepreneurial businesses and nonprofits rely on NetSuite because NetSuite's the category king, the leader in business management software for handling every aspect of your business. Uh, they are number one in cloud ERP. And NetSuite, NetSuite, <laughs> NetSuite grows with you from the garage to the IPO. If you're just 10 folks, but you have big plans, you should look into NetSuite. And if you're, um, you know, maybe you started on QuickBooks or something like that, and you've got a, a hodgepodge of other uh, apps, e-commerce apps, and all sorts of custom stuff knitted together, and it's starting to be a pain in your hoo-hoo, it might be time to upgrade to NetSuite and to have one 
integrated, complete business management software in the cloud for every part of your business. The other thing that's awesome about NetSuite, if you're like me, you're out in the world all the time. And imagine running your business from your smartphone or your tablet with an awesome set of dashboards that allow you to stay on top of sales, finance, accounting, orders, and even human resources uh, instantly from your mobile phone. There's a reason thousands of the best known brands and fastest growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business. And now NetSuite's available to you at a surprisingly cost-effective price. So as a listener to this podcast, check out netsuite.com slash different. And there you'll be able to set up, set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. And you can talk about the barriers, the challenges, and most importantly, the opportunities to turbocharge your growth. Check out netsuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank the amazing new book from our friend and guest today, Gretchen Rubin, Outer Order, Inner Calm, available everywhere where legendary books are available on March 5th, 2019. The incredible people at OneLifeFullyLive.org. They're the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out one. Uh, the number one life fully lived, all one word, dot uh, org today, one life fully dot org. Now, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Is it time for you to scale you? Um, maybe you should consider the power of a virtual assistant with Bottleneck Virtual Assistants at bottleneck.online. These are amazing folks helping you get more done at a very cost effective price. Check out bottleneck.online. Also, while you're checking cool stuff out, uh, take a look at GrowWire.com. This is the new place on the internet that uh, legendary entrepreneurs are hanging out for great stories of innovation. Uh, there's a YouTube channel. There's an awesome podcast. I just guested on that podcast with uh, the amazing Fritz Nelson. Uh, so check out GrowWire.com. And uh, are you in Australia? Uh, we keep getting feedback from folks in Australia. It feels like our listenership is growing down there. So if you're an entrepreneur, you're a business leader, you're a marketing leader, and you want to do some legendary marketing in Australia, check out our friends Rapid Media at rapidmedia.com.au. Now, are you a younger person staring down college, not thinking maybe it's for you? Praxis is an alternative to college that helps you focus on practical education and apprenticeship. Go to Discover Praxis, that's spelled P-R-A-X-I-S dot com to learn how to launch your career today. And uh, don't forget the amazing people at Kiva, K-I-V-I-V-A dot org. These folks are helping entrepreneurs in the developing world with microfinance loans, and you can too. Check out kiva.org today. All right, I need to remind you that uh, this information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights remain perturbed. Uh, we must warn you that clearly this podcast goes way better with libations. Uh, don't forget, you can find us at Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. If for some reason you want to email us, send email to blackhole, all one word, at Lockhead.com. And God forbid you want to follow me on social media, but if you do, I'm at Lockhead on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to support global happiness. Speaking of happiness, buy John's Crazy Socks, the official sock supplier to this uh, podcast. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. And if you're an iOS user, it's gotten even easier. All you have to do is enable Siri and then stare at your phone and say, Hey Siri, subscribe to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, or any other podcast you want to turn somebody else on to. Don't forget to listen to Robert Earl Keane. There's no stopping the Cretans from hopping. Only buy pasture-raised, free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of Pacific Gas and Electric. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. I really appreciate you investing part of your life with me. And uh, until we're together again, follow your difference.